the UK, Weatherspoons is a massive part of our society and our culture. On high streets all across the country, you can find gas like this one behind me, offering food and drink for very low prices that can't be matched. What? Love it or hate it, Weatherspoons is an iconic part of British culture. There are around 900 pubs across the UK slinging 3 million pints of beer every week. The pub chain has deeply embedded itself into our social fabric. And yet, while its owner, Tim Martin, has sought out profit and personal success, he has inadvertently created a network of democratic community spaces across the UK. The importance of spoons to the social lives of people on these aisles and the ongoing closures of 50 Weatherspoons pubs might raise the question of whether people should have more control over their favourite public houses. Should we nationalise Weatherspoons? You're listening to the first episode in a new series of The Full English. And this episode is divided into two halves. In the first half, I speak to Gemma Greenwood, a new member of the Full English team, about the history of Spoons and why it's become so popular. In the second half of the show, I speak to the economist and friend of the podcast, James Meadway, about the politics of Spoons and the merits and limits of public ownership. You can hear a much more in-depth version of this episode by subscribing for as little as £3 a month over at patreon.com forward slash full English. Welcome to season three of the Full English Podcast. I'm Lewis Bassett and I produce this episode with Gemma Greenwood. As always, Forest DLG does the mixing and the sound design. Gemma, thank Hello. You. thanks for coming over. You've become our, our resident expert, as I understand it, in Weatherspoons. I knew you were going to say resident expert. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But we'll go with it. It's true. I mean, you don't live here. No. Where is here? I mean, this is, we're just Lewis's in my flat. flat. Yeah. It's a very nice flat. Lovely. I could it? live here. It's really nice. Are you, yeah, I don't know if you could. Yeah. <laughs> There's not, it's only one bedroom. Thank you for bringing me a Basque cheesecake. Delicious. You can't eat it though. No, because, I'm a vegan. Because you're a vegan. I'm a vegan. What a great vegan though to go out there and buy someone else a Basque cheesecake. People probably be angry about that to be fair. Yeah, that, the blood like is on your hands yeah. really because I wouldn't have otherwise bought this. Maybe don't tell people this. Well, it's <laughs> too late for that. Nevertheless, so you're a resident expert on, on Weatherspoons. What have you found out? Let's, let's, start, at the, let's start at the start. Um, where does Weatherspoons come from? What's the origin story? The origin us? story. Yeah. Well, it all started back in the day with a young Tim Martin. Oh, I feel like we need that kind of Hovis <laughs> advert music. We need like, yeah, exactly, like the little intro in. Uh, Tim Martin, not cousin to Chris Martin. <laughs> yeah, as some um, people have said. As some people on this podcast have said. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he was 24, so he was a young guy. Um, he was just qualified as a barrister and he was a regular at pub in Muswell Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, which That's North lived, London. Yeah, in North London. Um, and he just, yeah, I believe that he just really liked it and he wanted to own a pub. <laughs> um, I understand he was like looking for ideas as to what to do. And, and the first thing that came to him was to become a squash superstar. He went. He really wants. Where did you read that one? I I don't I don't know. But in preparing for this, I I was reading some bits, and he he was really into squash, and then he learned that he just wasn't good enough. Yeah. And his second his second uh, thought was because he he for some reason really wanted to be successful. Mm. Um, and 
His second thought was to run a network of squash clubs. Uh, but I guess he saw that also there wasn't a lot of demand for that. And so this is the third. So he's 24. He's in Muswell Hill and he's had yeah. the, this new idea, which is... Let's start a pub. Not, or let's take over a pub. Right. Okay. And what pub was that? It was uh, Martin's Freehouse. Well, actually, it wasn't before. Mm-hmm. What was it before? I don't think it's a known thing. I think it's, um, yeah, that bit kind of is insignificant, if anything. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't Martin's Freehouse before, but when he took over. But before that, we know it was a betting shop. We know it was a betting shop. Which is significant. It was significant, because, because. also it was small. Yeah. So what that meant is you also, it was much smaller than a regular pub. So mm-hmm. you couldn't get that many people in. Mm. Um so I think it said this, this footage was 500 square feet, which is half the size of a common pub. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of was one part of why to then start looking for additional sites. Mm. Um, but also I think he had that drive anyway to open multiple sites and, and kind of build a bigger thing. And like the significance of it being a betting shop before was because that kind of sets up the model for what Weatherspoons has been so good at doing, which is yes. converting all these random buildings into pubs. I mean, that's jumping ahead, if anything. <laughs> it's definitely jumping ahead, but we can see the writing is on the wall at this early stage, yeah. right? Yeah, because that, that is crucial to the success because part of it is that when so when he started opening up additional sites, like when he had enough custom mm. and there was popularity and kind of interest there, he opened more sites, but he couldn't actually find pubs to open mm. because a lot of I think it was the um, the national brewers at the time they didn't want to sell to him, so it gave him the idea to basically start looking at other sites, especially retail sites. Mm. Um, and the second site he opened was a car showroom. Wow. Um, and that in turn, I mean... He's a creative soul. He's a creative Martin. soul, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Inspired, but I think like, it's... Like his cousin Chris Martin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'll be songwriting next. Yeah. Squash didn't work out. Weatherspoons was all right, but uh, songwriting. Yeah. Next venture. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's that thing of like, he had the drive, like, like you said, he wanted mm. to be super successful. Um, he also wanted to prove people wrong and like do something a little bit different. Because um, my understanding is you have these two types of pubs. You have, uh, I don't know what the name is for for the one that's owned by a brewery, but you have pubs that are owned, effectively owned by breweries. Yeah. And they're means for uh, breweries to distribute their beer. So in yep. London, you'll see like Fuller's Brewery or, or Green King or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you have Free Houses, which is what Tim Mar- the route that Tim Martin went down. Yeah, Martin's Free House right. was what it was originally called. Right, and that means you're not tied to the brewery. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's part of also why it's so cheap. And again, Mm. this is like, there's a whole massive thing about this. Mm. Um, But yeah, it's because basically landlords usually, or or the the brewers rather, they lower their costs. They either Mm. that I think the pub landlords have to buy from them or that they get significantly reduced rates. Whereas because Weatherspoons own their own sites... They they're not beholden to anyone, so they mm. can basically go out and negotiate their own prices on their own terms. Obviously, as they've got bigger, that means that because they're so popular, um, you know, people want to work with them, mm. and therefore are also willing to bring their prices down, which then Weatherspoons can sell for significantly less than anyone else. It's volume. Um, it's a volume. It's, game. it's volume, and their whole thing is to get more volume, and you do that by cheaper prices. That in turn draws people in. That in turn makes them more, I don't know, interesting to suppliers yeah. to, to supply their products as well. Because there's a lot of rumour about why Weatherspoons is so cheap. You ever heard this one about like, oh, it's so cheap because it's always selling almost off beer? You ever heard that? Yeah, 
I think they had to put out like a PR article about it that like it wasn't, that right. it's all fine or so something. So what is the real reason? I mean, you're kind of touching on it there. But... Well, there's multiple reasons. Oh, yeah? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's ultimately, it's it's because of their like their price saving, which is, uh, I think I summed it up in my notes, was ownership, flexibility and competitive edge. Mm. So ownership, as I say, is because they're not beholden to anyone. Mm. I apparently really like the word beholden. Uh, <laughs> Flexibility is because they, um, although it's a chain and it's got obviously a mass amount of sites, mm. uh, also within the individual Weatherspoons, they can set their own prices. Um, and I suppose from being a bigger company, they, they have the means to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens is in the local Weatherspoons, uh, it's said, anyway, it's rumoured, that employees go round and look at the other local pubs mm. and basically determine how spoons should set their own prices based on that. So Mm. they can always be lower and more appealing. Um, And then that gives them obviously the competitive edge as well. So they already start coming in at a lower price. Mm -hmm. Um, After that, they also have various like money saving ways. So there's a whole thing about precision and like no wastage. Mm. So they have certain means to pour like the perfect head on a beer and not to have any waste. Right. Uh, They weigh it sometimes. Yeah, they weigh it. I think they say they have to have a 5% head uh, and drip trays are emptied at the end of the night. So they know exactly what they're getting. Mm. So it's all about being like precise Mm. uh, in what they're doing. That way they, they get most profit because then they're saving essentially. So it's everything. like they're buying up these sites that aren't even pubs. Yeah. Sometimes they're amazing sites, like yeah. old theatres and stuff, but maybe we'll come to that in a minute. Yeah. But they're not pubs anyway. So they're not beholden to to, to the brewery. No. Nope. Um, they're their own boss in terms of like they don't have a landlord. So they don't have to worry about that. And then they're ruthlessly efficient. Ruthlessly efficient, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and, but then the key thing is this volume thing, I think. It's volume. So it's, it's like, it's the supermarket thing, right? Yeah. Like, like as I understand as well, that Tim Martin was really influenced by, was it Walmart yeah. in the US? So there was a book that they wrote, and yeah. I think it had the 10 rules to success, like successfully running a business like that. Mm. And um, yeah, I think one of the, yeah, it was by Sam Walton, who's the the Walmart founder. And he says his 10 rules for business is not to be beholden to our supply chain, and he also says, listen to everyone in your company, mm. which I also think is interesting. I think what I found in my research is actually Weatherspoons is a model that continues to change constantly based mm-hmm. on what what's going on, what's relevant today, uh, what the customer or what they think the customer wants. And if it doesn't work, they ditch it. Yeah. Um, so of course, they know who they are very much so, mm. but it's so flexible in that it can chop and change. Just quickly on the on the not to be beholden to your supply chain thing. That, so that's the supermarket model. It's also Weatherspoon's model as well. And it's just the fact that they sell such volume yeah. that they can turn to their suppliers and say, if you want to be sold by us, you know, like you have to give us this price. Like yeah. they are the boss, like the same in the same way that supermarkets are. So that, you know, we have this egg crisis in the UK at the moment. And apparently one of the, the reasons for that, <laughs> well, yeah, but you, you, you're missing out on the egg crisis. <laughs> but what apparently one of the reasons for that is not just uh, bird flu, but it's the fact that supermarkets will turn around to suppliers and say, you need to give us eggs at this price. And suppliers are just like, we can't, we can't afford to do that anymore. Um, it was the same thing with milk a while ago. There's a lot of like mm. conflict about it. So that's what Weatherspoons can do. They say, we sell such volume. If you want to be sold in our pubs, you have to give us this price. So kind of aggressive relationship to their suppliers. But on the other rule that you mentioned, listen to everyone. 
Yeah. Like the example that I read about that is that, you know, Copperberg. Is it yeah. Copperberg? The, no. Is it cider? Yeah. yeah. That kind of, is it Swedish? I think it's Swedish. It sounds Swedish. Yeah, it's like intensely sweet. Sweet, yeah. You yeah. get like strawberry and lime. Right. The reason that <laughs> that is like, the reason we even know what that is, was apparently a Swedish employee at Weatherspoons suggested that in Tim Martin's like, I don't fucking know, like his like suggestion box. I don't know what the process is. Um, and he thought it was a great idea and introduced it into his wow. pubs. Yeah. However, anecdotally, I have another uh, story about this, which is my brother used to work at Weatherspoons okay. a long time ago in Nottingham. And I think he was only 16 or 17 or something. And he suggested to Tim Martin, uh, could you just, could we just do some recycling? Because every day he was responsible for like throwing away like loads and loads and loads of packaging mm. boxes that all the beer and stuff would get delivered in. But also all the plastic, he worked in the kitchen, also all the plastic in all of the, um, you know, ready meals. And he found it a bit depressing, just like how much plastic and paper he's throwing away every day. Made a suggestion, nothing changed. You know, like, I don't, yeah. this was, this is probably in like 2006. So I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe now they are recycling. I, got, I can't really say, but you know, there's going to be limits to, to how like, much Tim is listening process? to you. Yeah. 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 Sorry, we, we completely went on a diversion there from the origin story. Yeah. Let's get back to that because, I mean, we're missing out on quite a lot of, like, big innovations that really happened in the, in the, spoons, in the spoons narrative. Do you, wanna, do you want some, some uh, hard facts now? Let's have, some, ha let's have okay. some hard spoons facts. Okay, so. got some hard facts for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so his second showroom, open, or second site, rather, which was this former car showroom, mm. that opened in 1981. And then four years after opening, in 1983, they'd expanded to four pubs and then they'd finally become like profitable. Mm -hmm. So I think the fact was they were earning 180k uh, in net profits. I'm not entirely sure what that means. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> the reason that I know that that's successful is because Martin, like Tim Martin was quoted as saying, um, I think it was a quote in The Independent at the time. He said, had I stopped there, I could have said this was a successful business. Instead, Weatherspoons went hell for leather for expansion, adding 40 to 50% to sales each year. Mm. So again, I feel like that says something about him and his drive and not yeah. wanting it, you know, that's not enough for him. He's already doing well, he's noted that, but he wants more. The guy is unsatisfied. Yeah. He, he has an <laughs> he unf unfulfilled more. desires to be the best squash player in the world. He should probably have gone into squash, maybe. Yeah, maybe I mean, he route. went into pubs instead and yeah. now has completely <laughs> revolutionised our high streets. Basically, yeah. Um, and I think by 1991, so that's what, that's seven years later, um, they'd reported over a million pounds in profit. Mm. And then five years later, they'd opened their 150th pub. Uh, they had a hundred million pounds in overall company sales. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, that, that's a lot. When then. did they, at some point, Tim Martin took Weatherspoon's public and got yes. it listed on the stock exchange. So that was like a real important moment for, for the business in terms of raising huge amounts of revenue that they could then plow into these this huge expansion project. It's quite, quite similar to Greg's, actually. Yeah. It's really similar to Greg's, because Greg's, you know, it, if you listen to our episode on Greg's, you would have heard that it started off as a quite humble project in the Northeast, a small bakery, had a kind of very slow, gradual expansion. And then as it emerged that it was, you know, had a profitable way of operating, it went public, got loads more investment, and it just exploded. It's kind of what's happening here. Well, it's kind of well, what was weird with Weatherspoons is that it was a risk. So, yeah. also, he was publicly mocked for taking it public. Mm. I think, again, it was because it was in these unusual sites. Um, 
So I think it was the Times, for example, were noted as criticizing the move. Uh, and they basically told investors not to invest and to abandon the company. Mm. Um, but obviously, Tim Martin carried on. Like it prevailed. He's stubborn. Yeah. We know that about and him. And now they're doing really well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to see how it can fail. I don't think it can. <laughs> it's just so embedded in, in British life now. It's ingrained. I think that's what's most interesting about it is Spoons is like everything. Everyone knows Spoons and for different reasons. Like it's almost satirical. Yeah. And that now we're doing the, why do you find it so interesting, Chera? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which is the question I, I wrote down to ask you. Just We've sped for, ahead for here. People, people who can't see our notes. Um, but I think that that is because it's literally, it's, it's more than, like, ultimately, it's a high street chain, like it's a company. And uh -huh. Tim Martin can do, what, you know, what he wants with that. But it is more than that. It's become a part of British culture or English culture. Yeah. Um, you know, it's mocked in videos. It's kind of, if you're like, oh, I'm going down spoons, you know what that means. Um, so it is a bit of a parody. Yeah. Which I feel like in itself is inherently British, you know. And it's got an offer, right? Like a, like a really... Like fundamental offer that seems to appeal to so many people. So many people. So in the morning they have breakfast. They start at eight a.m. Eight a.m. And they begin the selling alcohol from nine a.m. Do we know how many breakfasts they sell? Uh, in two thousand and two, less than five years after starting their breakfast, the company was selling two hundred thousand breakfasts a week. Okay. And in two thousand and fifteen, they were named by the Guardian as the UK's fifth most popular breakfast destination. So I feel that probably sums it up. Like, we have good breakfast in England. Yeah. So that that says a lot. I have, my understanding is, from looking into this briefly, here's some vital statistics. Weatherspoon serves 3 million pints a week. Okay. It serves 500,000 breakfasts a week. 500,000 people visit a spoons every single day. Wow. And it serves, guess how many steaks it serves every year? Have a guess. 150,000? Surely it's less than breakfast. 150,000 steaks a year. Oh, a year? A year, a year. Oh, no, that was a week. Oh. We're, we're moving into years Two million. Now. Two million. Two I'm, million steaks. My maths isn't great. I'm a vegan. 45 million steaks what? a year. Yeah. That's, That's a lot. mad. How many cows do you think that is? I don't want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Cover your ears now if you're, if you're a vegetarian. It's impressive. I mean, they're basically open morning, noon and night. Yeah. That's that's the, it's just, they, they... It's like constantly like nourishing people or nurturing people into yeah. a cycle. We talked about how in the, in the Greg's episode again, about how Greg's is now the third biggest retailer of coffee in the UK. Um, I think Weatherspoons is like the fourth. Yeah. Um, and I think that all started when Tim Martin was like in a... So Tim's known for basically visiting like three or four Weatherspoons every day. Like he's obsessed. Yeah, he tours, doesn't he? He just goes on tour. There, there was this um, article I read that he was on holiday with his wife, his poor suffering <laughs> wife in Cornwall. And rather than take the time off and just visit the regular two or three, he was visiting like five or six or seven God. spoons on his holiday in Cornwall every day. Just going in there. He says he doesn't have a pint in every single one. He just likes to go in and check what's yeah. going on. Anyway, um, he, so the idea to selling, selling coffee is that he was in a, on a high street on one of these tours. Um, and his pub was really quiet. Uh, this is like in the mid-afternoon, let's say three o'clock or something. His pub was really quiet, just been in there. Uh, walked out, saw over the road there was a Costa coffee. Uh, full people drinking coffee. And a uh, light bulb moment for old Tim. And they started selling coffee, refillable coffee now. 
Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so they, you know, they've they've got every dynamic. They've got the obviously the beer. They've got the kind of pub grub. Mm-hmm. They've got the breakfast in the morning. And they've got coffee throughout the day. They've got those ridiculous like um, jugs of cocktails for Blue students. Lagoon. Blue Lagoon. <laughs> yeah. Purple rain. The, the, also, the clever thing about refillable coffee, I think, is that how many coffees do you really want to drink? Well, exactly, but it keeps you there. And then obviously, afternoon turns into night or morning turns into afternoon. Mm. I mean, I think, did did you see that article that was from, there was a woman, I think, in Liverpool, and she was basically saying to save energy costs now because of what's happening, uh, she was just going to Spoons, basically, for a coffee right. and uh, to do her what's work. Because it's warmer. Just, yeah, because it's warmer. She doesn't have to have the heating on. She can use a Wi-Fi. She can use the Wi-Fi. And for the, the sake of 85p, for refillable coffee all day, she can just sit there. Right, right, right. Because that takes us to the point that um, we we're going to bring up in this episode, which is about how Spoons is kind of a national resource now. It is. <laughs> yeah. Because I think originally, basically, I watched like a video, like it was like a mocking video a little bit. It's called How to Do Weather Spoons. Um and it said that it's perfect for drunks, drug addicts, invalids, and the unemployed, which is about having that thing from being open so early. Mm. But actually, instead, I think it's all about the fact that it can accommodate like pensioners and it can accommodate students and people who maybe, yeah, work different hours. Um, I know that when we went into that Spoons in, was it Forest Hill? Mm-hmm. And uh, that guy, I think, was an Uber driver. Mm. And he was saying, yeah, it was just somewhere to go for a cup of tea, like at night. Like we went at whatever time we did in the evening. Mm. And uh, yeah, he was just there. And everyone was there. And it has become a, like a community centre. So Harrow, there was, I think it's called the Moon on the Hill. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, basically in Harrow, it's one of the pubs that's closing down uh, due to the decline at the moment with uh, Weatherspoon stocks. I think they're closing 31 pubs or something like that. Right, probably, because they're ruthlessly efficient, remember? Yeah, exactly. And their whole thing is about, yeah, selling off properties that don't work or the smaller mm. ones as well, because mm. their whole philosophy is about getting more people in, getting more seats. Mm. Um, so yeah, if something's small and they can go bigger, they'll go bigger, basically. Right, right, right. Um, but Harrow Business Improvement District, if I'm saying that right, Harrow BID, as I've been referring to it, like Forest DLG. Shout out to Forest DLG. <laughs> <laughs> um, they basically started a petition and it was called Save Our Spoons. Right. And uh, people basically were writing in about what weather spoons meant to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, So this is like Tim Martin's basically like, sorry, the people of Harrow, yeah. <laughs> you're not really coming into spoons, you're the not irony. using it enough. We have tight margins. You know, our whole thing is like selling volume and you guys are not, there's only a few pensioners hanging out here. <laughs> We're taking it away. However, the pensioners of Harrow are like, no, yeah. we want our spoons. They want their spoons. They literally... Wait, and what is, were they saying? Why? They said, okay, this is, I'm quoting from, from the petition. So somebody said that the pub was a community and social hub. Somebody said it was a vital part of Harrow life. Vital is quite a strong word there. Um, It's an asset to the local community, a bastion of the area, iconic. Someone said they've been going every year since 1995. Someone said it serves as a community centre for all retired people to meet and socialise. And they talk quite a lot, I think, about the fact that it is a meeting place, especially Mm -hmm. for older people within the community. Because I remember when I was a student and going there and everyone, you know, from Campbell, everyone from uni would go to Spoons mm. just because you all could. Like it had no pretense. It was cheap for everyone. So you'd all gather there. 
But you'd always see, you know, all the old regulars, all the locals. Uh, and again, like when we went to Forest Hill and we counted how many? 17? <laughs> <laughs> lonely, lonely men. <laughs> lonely older men on their own. Um, but I guess it is like a chance for them to chat potentially or, you know, somewhere just to be inside and have a nice time. Mm. Here's the thing, right? So um, Tim Martin is obviously a man who's intent on, you know, making a success for himself. Mm. And he's done really well. What he's done is he he created a model for pubs in which he decided to get massive, you just need to sell loads and sell cheaply. Yeah. Um, and inadvertently, what he's actually done is create this community <laughs> space. Yeah. Right? And it sounds like the project um, of a very like solidaristic, um, left-wing, community-valued person who's basically created this resource in which the food is cheap, the place is clean, it's warm. It's got free Wi-Fi. They won Lou of the Year. They they always they places. always keep winning. Yeah, <laughs> Toilet of the Year yeah. award, which is the thing. Um, so anyway, he's he's like his his motivation is clearly like profit and success and expansion. But what he's actually managed to do is just create this community space. It's amazing. I think it's almost it's like a it's that thing of how Weatherspoons has been ingrained into our culture mm. that now the culture almost has to take it on. So rather than selling it off all for profit, I don't know, why, why can't the community have it? <laughs> right, exactly. In some I regards. Mean, I mean, this is the question. This is all we're going to get into in the rest of the show. Because um, there's, there's this democratizing... Capitalism has this democratizing uh, aspect to it, right? It's not like, you know, if it's ran by an aristocrat and it's not for access to anyone. Like, basically, if you've got 89p, you can go to Weatherspoons because you can buy a coffee. Yeah. And that's the kind of democratic component of, of Weatherspoons. Maybe you won't be able to buy yourself a Blue Lagoon. But, you know, like, basically, like, if you... if Wow. I mean, how much is it? It's like a fiver. I'm sure you can get... We, we Remember, we saw there was a couple, like, on a date or something. Yeah. And they each had a jug of, of something. And yeah. then they had another jug. And that was like a Tuesday night. They were getting wavy. They were having a lovely time. <laughs> it's, it's an incredibly democratic space. But yeah, what was it? So we were going to say that quote that we pulled that was uh, from Tim Martin. This is specifically said, rich people like a bargain and poor people need one. And uh, it's, it's true. Anyone can go. That's the Spoon's philosophy. That's Spoon's philosophy. The question is... Um, should it really be in the hands of a man like Tim Martin? This is the question we're yeah, asking this, this is episode. The question. Or should it be in the hands of the people? Give it to the people. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the full English podcast. There's an extended version of this episode in which Gemma and I discuss Weatherspoons' fan following, Ed Sheeran, the buildings and the carpets, and one woman's mission to visit every single Spoons in the UK. To access that version, all you need to do is sign up as a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash full English. Otherwise, it's over to James Meadway on whether we should take Spoons into public ownership. James, welcome back on The Full English. Um, for those who don't know who you are, give me an introduction. Who, who's oh, James God. Meadway? <laughs> what, what can I say now? Uh, I'm, I'm an economist. Uh, worked for some years as chief economist at a think tank and used to run a think tank and, and just a general sort of commentator on economics issues and things like this. Yeah, I the reason I know you for context is through the Jeremy Corbyn mm. Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn led Labour Party. And you were, we'll, yeah. maybe we'll get into some of this, but um, you were key in driving some of the progressive policy and in, in, yeah. you worked for John McDonnell there, right? And we'll, right. maybe we can get into some of this. Let's start though. 
with Weatherspoons, just in general, are you a fan of Weatherspoons? Do you ever find yourself drinking there? What do you think about the place? Well, I, I do. I think I'm probably like a lot of people, which is uh, I do find myself drinking there. Um, but describe my, describe myself as a fan of Weatherspoons. I think it's like that's when you get into a stretch. Uh, I think it's the challenge of, of Weatherspoons is is the way, and perhaps we can talk about this. The way it's, it's occupied a space in like British public life and, and actually British geography. You know, if you go to most town centres, there's a sort of inevitable selection of, by this point, particularly when you, once you get out of the orbit of London, you get some smaller places, it's like, you know, it's kind of closed down shop, closed down shop, charity shop, chicken shop, there's your Weatherspoons. And that's, your, that's basically what your high street looks like now, right? So you've got these big spaces that are the only remaining public space where you might be able to want to go and sit in and can afford to go and sit in. And that's what you're left with, the great sways of the country, I think. Yeah, that's... In the first half of the show, I've been talking with Gemma, my co-host, um, and we're we're kind of painting a picture of just Weatherspoons, the extent to which Weatherspoons has basically become something of a community hub. The conclusion we kind of reach is that Tim Martin seems to be really interested in his own success and in maximizing profit for his company. But inadvertently, not only has he taken a bunch of historic buildings into, into use and kind of re- renovated them and repaired them and kept them, in, you know, alive, um, but he's created a community space that from morning till night, kind of in a way, if you've got a few quid, you can access. And that seems to be the case when you go to these small deprived towns or wherever, even places in central London. Um, yeah, there's everyone there is from from students to Uber drivers to to you know everyone you know and they're I mean, all that's that's, because... that's the that's the nice bit about Weatherspoons is is that it is this space but but the, the flip side is that it has to be this space right because because where else do people go like where else in um in Britain do you, do you have that sort of immediate mix of people I mean maybe in the summer you get the park or something right but what do you do for most of the year when the weather's terrible you have to go to the Weatherspoons there you are. um and and it is exactly that sort of cross-section of society that ends up there at various different points of the day. And it's not necessarily saying much good about the state of British society that Weatherspoons you know, run, as it has been for many years, by Tim Martin, who, like you say, is sort of... I don't know if it's despite himself. He's happened on a business model that works, but it's a business model that works because a load of other things aren't working so well to some extent, right? There should be more competition. There should be more provision for different kinds of spaces that aren't just, what is British social life? Well, we go to the pub, right? And there's not necessarily much beyond that, uh, particularly particularly in, in winter months. It's, it's, it's a problem that it ends up occupying this space. And it's a problem that... Like I said, too many high streets have just, it's, you know, the space is Weatherspoons if you want to socialise. And there's not necessarily much else there. And particularly, actually, just over the last sort of, I suppose the last 12 months or so, that so many other pubs are closing. You know, it's it, the incredible figures and probably the fastest rate of pub closure that, that we've ever seen in this country on the back of, I mean, quite a list of things, but the most impressing ones at the minute is, is what we mostly see as a cost of living crisis has been a disaster for small businesses in general. Uh, pubs in particular, rising energy costs on one side, there's some increase in labour costs on the other. The cost of what they're trying to sell, the cost, of course, if you're renting, then property prices are, are doing all sorts of funny things until very recently. Um, on top of which you had coronavirus and the impact of that, which Tim Martin, you know, has, has been quite vocal about. Um, this the adult this up and it turns into like suddenly there's this real pressure on what is often a community space beyond this function as somewhere to buy alcohol uh, and so you're kind of saying with is Weatherspoons right you're saying we shouldn't necessarily like champion Weatherspoons and be like what a brilliant space because really for you it's not a success story it's a symptom of like failure and that failure is it's, more contextual broader the, the, than 
Exactly. There's something of a problem here when it's like, it's sort of, you know, you can turn it into a bit of a sort of joke that, okay, we're all going to swear the spoons. Well, of course we're all going to swear the spoons because what else are you going to go to? You know, bigger towns are going to support a few pubs, right? Smaller places, maybe. But then Weatherspoons has got this reliable, open sort of, yeah, it does, it's cheap as they can get away with on the beer and that sort of thing. It's kind of, it's there. But you feel like there ought to be a bit more variety here. There ought to be something else happening. And you are right. You can do a positive bit in it. It's kind of it's good to have a great mix of people in one place. It's good that there's various historic buildings that otherwise would have fallen into disrepair or been turned into boring flats or whatever. Right? This is the sort of inadvertently good parts of what Tim Martin is doing. It's not so good that this is what we're left with. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, we are in this situation of, let's call it scarcity and um, post-austerity or still austerity, post-COVID uh, um, environment, social environment. Many people, many different types of people have come to depend on Spoons. Um, we've also heard recently that Spoons are closing or have, are in the process of closing like a bunch of, of their pubs. Um, there's one in Harrow that we were talking about in the first half of the show in which a lot of the local residents are up in arms about the fact it's being sold off. And, and obviously the reason for this, and this is at the same time as Weatherspoons' share price is going up. And obviously one of the big reasons for this is just efficiency gains, like cutting some of the fat away to the places that are like less profitable. You know, given that maybe Spoons is a bit of a public good, just like, you know, electricity or trains, should, in, a, in, a, in your utopian world, should we nationalise Spoons? Well, there's something to this. I mean, if you look, the, the other one with, with Weatherspoon sort of buying and selling properties, that coming out of coronavirus, they went on quite a, a buying spree. They were opening pubs in anticipation that a lot of people had that coming straight out of coronavirus would be this magic rebound and everybody would be spending money like crazy and everything just sort of snap back to normal. But because we've all got all this pent-up savings that we haven't spent, we'll all rush off and spend it. And what actually happened was yeah, those savings started to have to go into things like paying for electricity bills. Uh, and paying for food costs and not like going to the pub food costs, I mean, like your basic food costs or going on your rent. Um, so, so there wasn't that money there. And so they overexpanded. And in sort of classic uh, capitalist, up and down, unplanned, chaotic business sort of way, they're now having to dispose a load of places. Now, where the Spoons does kind of manage its property, I think quite, if you look, you can see that they actually open and close and it moves up and down quite a bit. This looks a bit more serious. Because there was one round of closures announced in January and there's another round going through now. And that's not just closure, that's job losses and this sort of thing on top of that. And we can get on to how Weatherspoons treats its staff and issues with unionisation and the rest of it. I mean, it's not particularly brilliant. I mean, like much of the retail sector in Britain, it's not been brilliant for a long period of time. It's a sector crying out for unionisation, but where unionisation is very weak and Weatherspoons is not a particularly pro-union employer. Let's let's put it that way. Um, so there are a series of issues that stack up about how you might manage this, that it does kind of make more sense to say that when you have something that has an obvious public function above its profit-making business, Tim Martin's not doing this because he wants to support public spaces in British social life. He's doing it because he wants to make a load of money and then whine about, you know, Brexit not being done properly or whatever he's got in his magazine this month. You know, that, that's Tim Martin's uh, view of the world. There is a case of saying that if you're providing a public function like this and the profit-making part of your business isn't able to do that, the benefit to society is sufficiently large that you can run this as a, as a kind of public good and you could nationalise, you could have in public ownership. Or, and perhaps you can talk about this, I mean, more, more plausibly, if you're getting onto what you might do with pubs, you can have community ownership in various forms. Like, there's a number of pubs up and down the country. If you go and look at the, the campaign for Real Ale, there are big supporters of, of people doing this, where pubs threaten with closure are turned into 
uh, a community-owned business. And, and people are making a success out of it because partly because they're not so desperately committed to have to make the profit and this sort of thing. There's people who want to see it work and there's quite a few places where this is happening. But yeah, there is a case for saying you can construct an economic case, quite a decent one for saying this is a public service. It is providing something over and above what a profit-making business can do. Therefore, you can turn it into, into a publicly owned company. I mean, I'm obviously asking this question a bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, but as you say, there is, you know, when you, when you talk about public service, and it just, it feels tongue-in-cheek because we're a million miles away from a kind of context in which that could be even a debate. Like, you've, you've, you recently talked about on the show price controls. And that, at the time that you raised it, which I think was back in, in, in January, seemed like madness, but now has like resurfaced as actually maybe some people think that might be a decent option. We seem to be so far away from the days of... Um, let's say, an in interwar period or the, just the post-war period in which there was a sense that the state could have some influence over people's lives and the sense that communities could have some control over their own, you know, environments. Um, but it's not maybe madness because, I mean, we were just talking about um, before we came on the show, the Carlisle experiment. Do you want to say what well, that, that was? Exactly? That's, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, you, you can, now there's a sort of, you say, oh, the state can step in. There's a sort of, there's double-sidedness to this. I mean, I think in part it's more important to have communities having some control over their local areas and saying mm -hmm. the government is necessarily going to provide this. But there have been nationalised pubs, state-owned and run pubs in Britain before and for a long period of time, uh, for, for close to what's close to 60 years from the middle of the First World War where mm -hmm. the government decided for actually reasons that, you know, a lot of people just completely disagree with. This isn't done out of some, you know, we're going to just nationalise pubs. It was basically people working in munitions yeah. factory were getting wasted at the weekend and yes. then not turning up to yes. work on a Monday. Yeah. So so the government basically decided they couldn't just ban drinking, right? This would provoke riots. And there was already right. brewing labour problems in munitions. Brewing in both sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah very good. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was this sort of brewing uh, sets, uh, strikes and issues in the munitions industries in particular. Uh, Glasgow is the epicentre for it, but there are other bits of the country where from around the middle of the war, you know, there's munitions workers who are very well paid by the sounds of everybody else, uh, starting to get organised, starting to place all sorts of demands, even starting to move in some parts of it into a kind of anti-war direction. So they didn't want to just close down pubs because this was definitely going to invite uh, unrest in some form. But they wanted to manage drinking. So they actually, in Carlisle, where there was a new munitions factory, a very big one being opened, and a few other places, uh, a few of them in Scotland, the government took over directly running the pubs, got rid of the pub landlords who were there, uh, put in basically civil servants, tried to regulate the amount of drinking that was taking place, and tried to sort of organise what a pub could be like. And this is where it becomes an interesting story, because moving out of the war, these pubs... But what it, I mean, for various reasons, partly because they were actually making a bit of profit for government, so the incentive to sell it wasn't quite there. There wasn't the sort of you know, ideological thing that came later that you must sell this stuff. Um, they were churning a profit, and you start to see some efforts building on what was happening in the war and how you could have a new kind of pub and that this would be in, in a post-war world. This would be actually, we're going to have different kinds of leisure and the pubs that, and this is what I find really fascinating about this is the, the model of pubs they end up with is one that's quite familiar now, but it's very similar to what Weatherspoons has ended up doing. Like the very first state-owned pub opened in Britain was an old post office. They repurposed, exactly like Weatherspoons do, a building that wasn't being used, turning into a pub. And they did something that Weatherspoons also do, which is get rid of, you know, the Victorian thing where you have all the weird little snugs and the little separate bars you're going to sit at and like lurk around in. Um, rip all that out and replace it with these big open expanse, right, where you're supposed to like all drink in instead, exactly like Weatherspoons do, and for the same reason. 
because it's easier to supervise. And that means you can have fewer staff looking after the pub uh, because it's kind of, yes, the panopticon is generally Bentham, right? You can see everything because it's open plan. So you don't have to have so many staff and it's easier to keep an eye on what's going on, obviously, because you don't have people hiding away in weird little Victorian-style snugs. They started introducing food, which had died out as something that pubs do. You know, exactly like Weatherspoons do. I mean, for slightly different reasons. This was like, oh, the health of the nation rather than we can make money selling you cheap chips. But that's that was the model that we start to end up with in the interwar period. And that was the, the state that was starting to set an example for what pubs could look like coming into the 1920s into the 1930s. So effectively, Tim Martin didn't really, he kind of reinvented the wheel. It had already been done uh, and he's, he's kind of doing it again. But I mean, when we talk about state-ran uh, canteens, whether it's state-ran canteens or pubs or whatever, the image that comes to mind, I'm sure must come to other people's mind, is the kind of horror of like 1984, like this kind of dour, sad place in which you get like a glass of gin with a, you know, a clove in it and it's going to be... But I mean, is that always the case with, with public ownership? I mean, you know, we're kind of being a bit jokey here about nationalising spoons, but I mean, there are kind of real issues with like choice, efficiency. Um, would, would, would a kind of publicly ran place like spoons become really expensive, you know? What, what are kind of some of the key issues of this? Well, there's, there's, there's an element of truth to that. I mean, you've got to bear in mind when these, both when they were repurposing buildings and taking over existing pubs, the, the state management company, as it was called rather unglamorously, uh, in, in Carlisle and elsewhere, would do things like getting rid of the obvious signs of this as a pub, like goodbye adverts outside saying come here to buy beer or whatever the adverts would say at the time. You make the buildings look plain. You try and encourage a sort of slightly dull look to it. That changes with the end of the war when there's an effort to sort of think about you know, what, what kind of entertainment could we have that's not just drinking in order to get very drunk, you know, the introduction of games and things like this into pubs. Um, that so, so it doesn't have to look like that in the history of what these institutions have been. And over time, they do. I mean, certainly by the 60s, these things just look like normal pubs in the sense of what a pub would look like uh, then. So you don't have to have that completely grey sort of 1984 state-controlled thing. It's just that there is a, there's a degree to which it's just quite hard for a government to start to think about what that might look like, that what you want. If you start saying, okay, no more pub landlords, we will have instead effectively civil servants running these things with a strict list of conditions, under wartime especially, about who's going to get beer and how much it's going to be and what's it, how, you know, how strong that beer will be and when you're going to serve, who you're going to serve to, and you just follow this list of rules. The, the element of, of, of sort of wildness and creativity and what a community might want from a building and a pub in particular isn't there in the same way because you're just imposing a set of rules. And there is a, a version of that that happens with the state and with state control. Now, there is also a version of that that happens with Weatherspoons in practice. In practice, if you go to any Weatherspoons, you know what you're going to get, right? And it's basically the same selection of beer for around about the same prices, some variation depending where you are in the country, and, and definitely the same menu. That really doesn't alter. And, and it's a standardisation of those particular conditions. Also, no music. No Weatherspoons pub plays music. This is a condition that everybody has, right? So there's no, you know, here's a free market giving you this very, very standardised output that if it was the government doing it, you could complain about, oh, the bureaucrats are telling us what to do because it's a free market. It's Tim Martin with his views about not having music in pubs, I assume. I, mean, I don't know yeah. why really they do this. So you, you kind of already have that uniformity. If you start to think about, okay, maybe this forms of community ownership or worker ownership or, or different ways of breaking this up and managing a space that's a bit more in touch with what people might want out of it, that isn't just your options are privatised weatherspoons or state management company maybe you can start to be a bit more creative about what you actually do with some of these public spaces we have. 
Mm. It's like the illusion of choice in a way, really. We live in this free market, but as you said, you walk down like your average high street, let's say where I'm from in the Midlands, and there's basically nothing there but betting shops, vape shops, and a, and a spoons, you know, in some places. Um, well, just going back to like your time working for John McDonnell, um, I know that you were, uh, or John and, and Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, for better or worse, uh, was was promoting nationalisation or public ownership of some key industries, but these was these were like natural monopolies, and by natural monopolies we mean things where there there is inherently no competition. So that would be trains, and it was also the Royal Mail, uh, water, energy. I mean, the argument for those for, for for having those in public ownership to me seems kind of obvious. Lots of other countries have it. it there's a, it's a natural monopoly, as I said. But there were other there was some there was a kind of fermentation to use brewery terminology again of really interesting ideas. And one of them I remember was um, community ran football teams. Can you, do you remember anything about that? And that, that seems to have, like have a bearing on what we're talking about here with uh, with pubs. Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's exactly the sort of the model that you might want to to go to. I mean, this made a reappearance. I thought really interestingly, and this shows you sort of how the politics around this is, is shifting. When it must be in Oliver Dowden, who was culture secretary at the time, threatened the various English football clubs who were keeping one eye and setting up this European Super League. If they did it, they'd have, they'd have a review of the forms of ownership of football, and this would include things like you know community ownership. And that, that was government putting pressure on these English football teams not to sign up to the, the mooted European Super League, which still, I mean, strongly suspect, is likely to come back in some form because everyone can see, you know, the not dollar signs, but euro signs in their eyes on this. Um, but that, that was where it started to appear as like, okay, we can change a form of ownership to get a different kind of results. And you can certainly do that with football clubs. And there are some, there are some small community-owned teams around here. But if you want to do it on a big scale, you have to start talking about not, you know, uh, trying to think of Wonderlich or somewhere. You, you start thinking about, okay, what about Man City, right? You know, what, what about something in the Premier League? What happens then? Other countries do this. It's much bigger in Germany, for instance, and it's very much bigger in terms of community ownership of, of football over there. I and mean, that's the other slightly weird thing about a lot of the conversations we get in Britain. It's like... You know, we sometimes forget collectively just how much of an outlier we are. It's really weird to have privately owned water systems. Water is a is just a classic example of where you are almost certainly going to want some form of, of government or, or state ownership, whether it's a local council, you know, lots of places in Europe have municipally owned water supplies or whether it's national government. It's just obviously something because you're supplying a completely essential thing to life. Like no one really cares about the choice. You don't you don't have several different taps in your bathroom from which you get different kinds of water, right? You just want the water coming out, it's be reasonably priced and it's not going to poison you, right? Like, these are the sort of basic requirements of it. As an incidental, you also don't want your water company to pump every single river in the country full of shit. Yeah, this is like, there are some elementary things that there's a really solid case for public ownership in some form at that point. Uh, and we don't have that in Britain or in England, I should say, because actually you do have it in Scotland and you've got a, a different structure in Wales. Um, you don't have that in England. You have these mad financialized uh, structures that were set up in the late 1980s that are basically treated as licensed to print money by the people who own them for a very, very long period of time. And we, as the customers of those countries, uh, companies in England, have to pay uh, for the cost of all that. And all those costs are now becoming very apparent. That is a really, really obvious case with public ownership in some form, however it's done. You can argue about the form. And Labour back in the day had some interesting proposals about how to do this better than the old water boards and the old uh, companies there. Where it gets more tricky is when you start saying, OK, what about when we do want some elements of choice, which is where you know, pubs is one of them. Yeah, actually, it's probably good to have more than one pub in a town. 
And it's probably good to have some sort of choice around this. And you want to go to a pub and have a different range of things there. It's not necessarily the case that government immediately is able to arrange pub ownership in that form. Although you could come up with one. You could you could come up with a, a form of pub ownership, perhaps in a kind of franchise scheme, where the government provided the franchise to different people who would then, you know, be able to run the pub as a as a going concern on the basis of some sort of state ownership. We can be quite creative about that, that about all of this. The problem we've had in Britain for a long period of time is that that creativity isn't there. It is always presented. We got this with Jeremy Corbyn's Labour, and you get it now as like either it is completely privatised, everything is absolutely sold off to the free market, to these giant corporations, they run everything, that's it. Or you must have, you know, a failing British Rail, 1970s, it's all bad, everything's grey, 1984, terrible, right? These are the two choices. There is nothing else. And it's absolute nonsense. There's a complete range of different things you could be doing that people do do across the rest of the world. You know, lots and lots of different forms of ownership. And, and breaking that question open, I think, is going to become increasingly important because obviously the privatised thing is failing. And obviously we don't necessarily want to go back to a not very good model of public ownership. So there must be something else you do out of this. Do you find it striking that um, a little more than five years ago, the Labour Party were talking about public ownership seriously? And in that time, we've had coronavirus, we've had of, like we've had the, basically the collapse of, 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 our, of many of our public utilities, the NHS is on its knees. Since then, you know, we still don't really have any serious conversation about public ownership in this country. Do you find that odd? It's kind of spectacular in some ways how quickly Labour has moved on these sorts of questions. I mean, it's always kind of quite likely to happen. I think it's quite likely to happen because it's basically just don't have a particularly good version of capitalism in Britain, right? It, it is it is based around and the core institutions of it, you think the Treasury and the Bank of England and bits of government and the, actually the major corporations tend to work on this basis. It is based around making as much money as possible, as fast as possible, typically around property and financialised products often based around property. Not so much and you can see this really obviously in the figures. I mean, Resolution Foundation, the think tank, had a, a time series going back over the last sort of 30 years or so, where Britain is just perennially the lowest investment major developed economy out there, just continually. We have companies and a form of capitalism in Britain, including the government, that just doesn't invest money. So this is partly why everything is kind of crap now. Because if you spend decades not investing properly in upgrading your, well, your water infrastructure, for instance, uh, your energy infrastructure, your transport infrastructure, if you just spend decades doing this, you're going to end up at the end of it with a form of capitalism that doesn't work. And we have a politics that sits on top of that, which corresponds to that form of capitalism more than it seeks to challenge it. That's certainly what you see with the, the Labour Party today. So you do end up, and there's a sort of public discussion around some of this stuff, the way it's dominated by, like I said, this polarisation, you, you, you know, it's presented always as a choice between, uh, you can either have basically failing, everyone knows it's failing, uh, privatisation of various essential things, you know, water, electricity, or whatever, or you can have, and it's, it's it's shown to you as the worst thing that can ever be, you know, by by various sort of newspapers and the government itself. It's like, oh well, you can all, all you can just have this awful thing where you just go like in some time walk back to the nineteen seventies, uh, and and that's it. And there's there's no other meaningful discussion around that. Now, I do think it's breaking open, not least because the privatisation failures are becoming so obvious. And it's got to the point where this government, which ideologically doesn't really want to do this, keeps having to nationalise stuff. Like, uh, there's talk about Thames Water a couple of weeks ago. They have nationalised a bunch of uh, railway companies. They have nationalised a steel producer uh, up in Sheffield. You know, it's essential to produce British arms. It, it sort of keeps happening that they keep having to do this. And that's a product of crisis. That's a product of things not working. So if we want to deal with crises now and the ones that are likely to 
hitters coming down the line, particularly around climate change, it would be better to have a serious conversation now about what we might do. This isn't just privatise everything and wait for the market to sort it out. And we're not really having that. And food, obviously, is yeah. absolutely at the core of that because we're looking at a cost of living crisis now. And when you mention climate change, you know, our food supply system is completely precarious in regards to that. So, yeah. So, in a way, when I'm asking the question, should we nationalise spoons, it's obviously a bit ridiculous, but it opens up some interesting things that probably we should be talking about, right? Yeah, it should do. I mean, it, opens up, it opens up two sets of things. I mean, I've talked particularly about the public space part of it because I think that's the, that's the sort of robust economic case for saying, why should pubs not be necessarily in private ownership? Because they provide this big social good, right? There is a public space that is over and above making money from selling beer, right? I mean, you, you kind of pay a premium when you buy a pint in a pub because you're getting access to that social space but it's over and above for, for the wider community. But the other part of it is exactly as you say, there's this, it's bearing down us in a way that, particularly in Britain, I don't think we've really had to think about for a very, very long period of time. I mean, probably really since the 20s or 30s, when you had a sort of food crisis, an incipient food crisis. Um, so that's a very long period of time uh, where our supply of food is exactly, as you say, surprisingly, I think, vulnerable, or it'd be surprising to a bunch of people. And we've seen instances of this already, uh, early in the year when suddenly you couldn't get tomatoes and salad and this sort of thing. A whole bunch of people blamed it on Brexit, but it's, it's not really. I mean, it's like Ireland, which is still in the European Union, is having the same sets of problems for the same sets of reasons. That, you know, you're an island off the northwestern coast of Europe, it's going to be inherently quite hard to get tomatoes in the middle of like January and February and lots of salad and that sort of thing. That's something that makes a vulnerability. But the really big vulnerability is actually there's now a drought from in your major suppliers uh, down in Morocco and, and Mediterranean, and they aren't going to be able to sell you this stuff in quite the same volumes as you've got used to. It's, it's a vulnerability that's built in there. You know, close to half the food we eat is imported. And, and for particular kinds of food, it gets even more uh, uh, dramatic. That you know, the Spain, most of Spain, 6% of Spain is in drought already this year and has been for some time. It's directly impacting food production. Spain supplies close to half the kind of fresh project. No, sorry, a quarter of the fresh produce we eat. You know, there's a real direct vulnerability that, that's appeared there. And if we have a version of the food supply system where it is basically entirely privatised and deregulated as far as possible, and we rely on big private companies to manage every single part of this, we're going to run into problems. You've seen the discussion around supermarket profits in particular, which in some ways is the most obvious bit, where the government has been sort of wondering what to do about this, you know, floated the idea of price controls, backed away from it, and they have a nice little chat with some of the supermarkets every so often, and the supermarkets promise to do something, and then what really happens out the other side, not so much, and all the supermarkets say, oh dear, we're making no profit whatsoever, it's all terribly sad. But you can see in the Financial Times the markup that's appearing on pints of milk, for example. You can see the vulnerabilities. Everyone can go to the shops and see what's happening here and how bad it is now in Britain relative to, to much the rest of Western Europe at least. So these are the vulnerabilities. They're all going to get worse. Like There's, there's no point at which climate change suddenly gets better for everyone. It's already bad. It's going to get worse. And we're going to be confronted by some really serious problems around the distribution and supply of food in a way that our discussion of it must always be the market that will resolve everything will not be able to deal with. So what I'm taking from this is whether or not we should nationalise spoons, it's hard to say, mm. but certainly we should be having a conversation about the role that the public sector, the, the state and communities play in our economy and our society. Um, James, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming back on the Full English Podcast. No, worries. Um, no problem at all. Um, if people want to hear more from you, James, uh, where should they look for you? I run a podcast called Macrodose. It's a weekly 
50-minute update on, on economics and ecological things that have been happening that week. So the aim is to make it pretty short, pretty accessible, and just something you can listen to quickly and get a sense of what's going on in the world. Such a great podcast. I really recommend people listen thank to you. it. James, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Full English. This show is produced by me, Lewis Bassett, and this episode was researched and presented by Gemma Greenwood. Sound and mixing is from Forest DLG. To subscribe, visit patreon.com forward slash full.